Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Vynamic's Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. And just of note, our host, Jen, is taking some time to enjoy her new baby, and Ryan and I are going to take over for a little while to talk about what's trending now. Ryan, I'm curious because there's been a lot of activity going on. What headlines have you been following lately? We've talked a lot about the idea of digital healthcare and healthcare technology getting some heavy funding over the last several years. We're actually seeing some market cooling, and we're seeing market cooling from a funding perspective, and then, unfortunately, from a people perspective, too. After reaching kind of a high that we've never seen before last year in 2021, research says that digital health funding has decreased in 2022, and they've raised $10.3 billion, which is actually lower than in 2021 for the first six months. It's still healthy, but we're seeing some cracks in the armor when it comes to healthcare technology and the economy. And unfortunately, we've seen two rather large healthcare technology companies face layoffs. We saw a Columbus-based company, Olive, announced just this week that it's cutting 450 jobs. And just to put that in perspective, I think that's close to a third of their workforce. And we're just talking about companies like this, Olive receiving $400 million in funding, valued at $4 billion. The CEO attributed the layoffs on overly aggressive expansion. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of overextending of some of these healthcare technology firms. Another company, Capsule, which for those of you that don't know, is an app-based pharmacy startup, had kind of a unicorn status over the last year. We've seen so much marketing and expansion there. They initiated layoffs just this week. And it's really joining this, this, this kind of theme of healthcare startups that have been slashing headcounts to adapt to this market uncertainty, specifically around digital health. Keep in mind that this overall funding is now pacing the land around $21 billion. Like I said, it's less than 2021 at 29 billion, but it's still significantly more from two years ago in 2020. And a lot of experts, we've done some research of this, are pointing that this is an anomaly rather than the norm. And Rock Health has provided a lot of details on that. When you look at the funding, one has to ask, where is the funding going? And if you look at where investors are placing their their bets, they're definitely moving into more growth stage digital health companies. You look at the first half of 2022, where the average check sizes for Series C and D plus deals declined by about 22% and 12% respectively compared to 2021. And that was also in the Rock Health report. Meanwhile, right, early stage digital health companies, which are more likely to be free of 2021 valuation baggage, are likely to attract investor attention in today's market. I don't think digital health is going away, and this does feel like it might just be a dip right now in terms of or a shift in where we're seeing some of the investment go. But I think you look at overall funding and and some of those those entities that you mentioned that were really reliant on this funding could have an experience some really negative impact, not only in the funding piece of it, but as you mentioned, the people piece of it. So this could be a really a tough year for some of those, those organizations going forward. 
I agree. Another piece of news that we're following that I've seen is this the release and launch of the new mental health hotline that's available in the and this new 988 mental health crisis hotline has been set up nationwide. It's really a long time coming. We've been reading about this for a long time and the primary goal of the new number is to make it easier for people to call for help when it comes to mental health, suicide and mental health prevention and you know, this 988 number connects callers to a network of trained counselors and people who call or text this number are connected with said trained counselors at a crisis center that's closest to them. Really cool triaging program where if a local crisis center is too busy to respond right away, the call then gets routed back to backup centers across the country. And, you know, it's really important. I was reading a lot about this. It's, it's, it's a long time coming. I'm really excited when you talk about the clogging of 911. And this is more than a suicide line, right? I think that, that the marketing has been really important to talk about offering support for folks or for family members who are experiencing emotional distress or those that are worried about people in emotional distress. And they're immediately connected to people that are trained in handling these mental health issues, which currently folks calling 911 and getting connected to police or other first responders that may not have that training on handling mental health issues. And if you do some research across the country and it's very regional, they're seeing rises in calls after this launch of 998. So a really important next step when we talk about behavioral health and helping folks get connected to people that are trained to handle these situations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this one really struck me as definitely being something that we should follow because I think it's an important new resource to provide access to those in crisis. And Brian, you and I have talked about this for a while, but from a a mental health access perspective, this has been an ongoing challenge because quite simply, the, the supply just doesn't meet up with the demand. So I think this number provides like a very focused effort to at least try to centralize a a first point in gaining access to the right types of resources for those that are feeling in distress. We know that COVID has really shined a light on mental health and that, you know, it's becoming more relevant in the healthcare system and for people that are experiencing mental health crises that access was truly an issue for them and and knowing just who to call and what resources to be able to tap into. So I, I couldn't agree with you more that I think this is a first good step in trying to address the gaps that exist in the mental health arena when it comes to providing people with, with resources that they can tap into. Another topic, Ryan, that has obviously been playing itself out since really earlier this year has been the anticipation of how the Supreme Court of the United States would rule on Roe versus Wade, and then obviously the overturning of that statute. I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about how we're starting to see the effect of that decision show up across the country and throughout the healthcare industry. As we start to see life post Roe versus Wade, Here's what we're starting to see, um, particularly the activity in Congress. So the House voted to restore abortion rights nationwide in a 219 to 210 vote in Democrats' first legislative response to the Supreme Court's landmark decision that overturned 
this statute. And they passed a second bill to prohibit punishment for a woman or a child who decides to travel to another state to get an abortion, though the bill has really little chance of becoming law with the necessary support that would be lacking in a Senate that's evenly split. I think it's a reminder, though, of the fact that Congress could do something, but much like we've seen, there's just not a lot of bipartisan support in moving this forward in the Senate stage. So... You know, as a reminder, I think by overturning Roe, what we're talking about is that the court has basically allowed states to enact stricter abortion laws and and limits and restrictions. And we no longer have this national framework for women's reproductive health. Instead, everything is now being cascaded down to the states. And I think as as we start to turn into an election year, it will be something we need to keep an eye on is just how much of the the confusion that is kind of starting to rise up through the the country and the industry makes its way to the polls and whether this landmark decision that was made actually has an impact on midterm elections. The term confusion is a very apt term when you think about these decisions, because if you think about it, you know, we eat, sleep and breathe healthcare decisions made on Capitol Hill. But folks that don't necessarily have a connection to healthcare don't understand all these decisions made and what is legal in their state, what is illegal in their state. And, you know, I think it's important for us to talk a little bit about the disproportionate impact to certain groups across the country, too. We've talked a lot about the idea of low-income women are already prone to a higher maternity mortality rate than in other countries. So low-income women are disproportionately likely to get an abortion as well. It's estimated that 75% of the U.S. abortion patients earned incomes less than the poverty level. And so you think about this idea of maternal mortality rate, this idea that low-income households are the ones that are utilizing healthcare services to get abortion. And it's this healthcare continuum problem that I think we're going to have to address uh, immediately. We're spending so much money per capita on U.S. healthcare, yet we lag behind so many developed nations when it comes to maternal mortality rate. And studies indicate that that's only going to get worse with this new decision. Abortion restrictions will have an outsized impact on these low-income women. And keeping in mind this whole idea of travel, right? We talked about this, I think, in the last podcast. States that permit abortions also requires funding. And experts fear that these numbers are only going to get worse as this is overturned. And At a more detailed level, what we want to talk about also is underinsured and uninsured women as well. And this goes part and parcel and is very correlated to this idea of the disproportionately affected folks, right? Women between the age of 15 and 49 who reside in those, what we feel as 21 states likely to ban abortion are disproportionately have a lack of health insurance. And it's going to be a really, a real issue. And, you know, specifically with black and Hispanic women across the United States, because those folks are more likely to have abortions than than other. I mean, nearly three quarters of Hispanic women and close to that, I think close to 60% of non-Hispanic Black women obtained abortions in the 21 states likely to ban them. If you think about all these facts we're throwing at and all these issues, no matter what stance you are on this, it's going to negatively impact those low-income households folks that are Black and Hispanic women that are already uh, have obstacles when it comes to maternal mortality rate. One of the things that that you mentioned that, 
that strikes me is we talked a little bit about interstate travel and the fact that it requires funding. You know, I think in addition to that, some of the activity that we're seeing, once again, in Congress, where the Senate has blocked a bill to protect interstate travel for abortion. So President Biden issued an executive order to protect patients that cross state lines for abortion services. And then Democrats attempted to pass a bill that would prevent states from punishing women who travel to other states where abortion is legal to get the procedure, to have the procedure. So I think what we're seeing, obviously, is is tensions kind of playing themselves out, right, even in the, the legislative branch where there's only so much that an executive order can do. And we clearly are seeing that Congress cannot get to a point where they're they're finding some resolution or some sort of partisan agreement. Your point is well taken that we're going to continue to see not only confusion, but the impact of of this decision and how it really truly starts to show up for individuals seeking access as well as the healthcare system itself. We've already talked about stories where physicians are are really confused about what their guidance should be when trying to make medical decisions on interventions for women that are carrying fetuses that don't have viable pregnancies, right? And we're starting to hear and see glimpses of those stories and in the real world, right, what that looks like and how that's showing up and and the, the fear I think that physicians have too of making the wrong type of decision because they're just don't have a lot of clarity in where or how, what the criteria is right now, depending on where they practice. One of the things that we've seen specifically with this overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court is a very active session in the House of Representatives. You know, I feel like every day we're watching things get passed and pushed over to the Senate really related to women's health and healthcare. And overlaid on that is a a very seemingly ongoing feud between drug manufacturers and said federal government, specifically over the 340B program, which we've talked about for years. We have definitely talked about it for years. You know, I think when we we think about what's going on here, HRSA, which is the Health Resources and Services Administration, provides health care to people who are geographically isolated, economically, and medically vulnerable. Drug makers for, for a long time now have agreed that under the 340B program, where they offer discounted products to safety net providers in exchange for participation in both Medicare and Medicaid, which we know are, are very large programs, right, that offer healthcare coverage to seniors, people with special needs, as well as under-resourced populations. And this feud has been going on because drug makers argue that the program has gotten way too large and that the discounts are not really benefiting patients. So if you think about the purpose of 340B, it was to provide health systems that that serve you know, under-resourced populations with discounted prices. And then when they take that differential, apply it, right, to expand their services out into the community. And I'm thinking back to podcasts that we had done probably about a year and a half ago where we were talking about the opacity of some of the reporting and that it's not really clear where exactly all of that investment is going. And so drug makers have been 
arguing and, and concerned that maybe they're double paying on the same unit of product and health systems contend that, no, that's not the case. Like we are using those funds appropriately. So what happened is in 2021, like about 20 large drug makers just decided that they were going to cut off sales of 340B discounted drugs to contract pharmacies, which also play a role in all of this. And they do so representing health systems in dispensing the products on behalf of these, these covered entities. So, so in 2021, HRSA warned six drug makers about their restrictions to contract pharmacies. And of those, five filed a series of lawsuits arguing that HRSA actually lacks the legal authority to levy any fines and didn't follow proper notice and comment procedures. So it's just been this volleying back and forth between HRSA and drug manufacturers about this 340B program that continues to grow in size. And given what we're seeing with Supreme Court challenges in the healthcare system, one has to wonder whether this type of, of lawsuit actually makes its way up to that level to be heard and what types of issues at large would be part of that that discussion or that that hearing. So it's amazing to me that we're still talking about this and yet it still is hitting the headlines because the size of 340B just continues to grow and it's causing concern to all parties. As we've seen 340B and the program go from kind of a little program to a large program, we've talked about it being somewhat of a sludge fund. And you talk to one person on one side of the healthcare sector in the in the life science group and they look at it as a as a sludge fund for its participants, you know, including nonprofit hospitals and health systems. You talk to the health system leaders and you talk to the provider sector and and they wholly disagree with that. And so, you know, I think as this program gets larger and gets more notoriety around it, you know, something has to give. There's some balance. There's two sides to the story. We just have to figure out what the right balance is to make sure that the uninsured and those folks that really need these really important medications, and we're not talking about vaccines, we're not talking about, we're talking about post-acute, very important medications and, you know, focusing on the critical need that these folks have. And we're talking about hemophilia, HIV, and other community clinics that are the grantees of this stuff. So we'll have to keep our eye on this because as 340B continues to get bigger, you're going to see these polarizing viewpoints on it. And as Congress and, and the federal government gets gets involved, it's going to probably get a little more confusing before it's more understandable. Yep. And you know what I always say, who gets caught in the middle? The patient. I don't want to take sides in any of this because I don't think there are sides to be taken, but there are things that could be done to the 340B program to put a little bit more rigor around the program itself. So some of the chief findings of the 340B program is just the lack of transparency about where the dollars are going and the inability to really report on certain criteria within the program. And so having that opacity and that that nebulous, those nebulous reporting guidelines or gaps in the reporting, I think is part of what's driving this volume of disagreement between all of these healthcare stakeholders. So it's it's an important headline because of the number of people that benefit from 340B. And so I think this is one of those topics that I'm hoping a year from now we're not continuing to have a discussion about it because it's in, it's in headline news. But I do think it's something that is relevant um, to today. And uh, the fact that it's just an ongoing argument 
among stakeholders just tells you that there's something broken about this and, and to your point needs to be addressed. Well, Rye, this was a great discussion on headline news. And as always, we know that the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. So I can't wait to hear what we are talking about next month. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, subscribe to the Trending Health podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company with ongoing healthcare industry change please visit trendinghealth.com.